invite you to take out your Bibles and you can turn to John chapter 10. John 10, starting in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That sends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being gathered together as your people. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. And Lord, now as your word is preached, we pray that you would do what only you can. Lord, send your spirit to open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds. May we receive this word for what it truly is, the word of God, not the word of man. Lord, may we be built up as we study from your word what true abundance is. May we be encouraged and uh, meditate on these truths uh, throughout this day and throughout our lives. Uh, may it shape and transform us uh, to live in a way that is pleasing to you. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to bless now the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing again in our series in John, uh, picking up back in chapter 10. And uh, now to recap, to get us the context here, uh, Jesus in chapter 9 had just opened the eyes of a man born blind. And that man had then been kicked out of the synagogue by the Jews for having sided with Jesus and also for provoking the Jews uh, with his sarcasm back in verse 27. You may remember he asked, do you want to become his disciples also? Jesus then came and found this man after he had been kicked out. And Jesus revealed to him that he had in fact encountered the Son of Man, the Messiah. And we saw that man was converted as he then believed and worshipped Jesus. So now we come here to chapter 10, and it would seem to us as if a new section is beginning. Uh, the chapter break tends to have that effect. We tend to think that's the end of something, and now we're starting something separate. Uh, but we have to remember these chapter divisions were not original to the text. Uh, John would have written this all as one flowing narrative. And if you just read it, there's no indication from John that the setting has changed. And so we should really see the continuity here between chapters 9 and 10, right? No change of setting. Uh, the dialogue simply continues. And then we actually see in verse 21 of chapter 10, which we'll look at next week, uh, that this, the question the Jews are dealing with is still related 
to this miracle in chapter 9 of Jesus opening the eyes of a man born blind. Uh, So we see continuity here. This discussion continues uh, with Jesus and the the man born blind and perhaps the Pharisees surrounding him. Truly, truly, I say to you, John 10, 1, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, to fully get what Jesus is saying here, I think we need to get a little bit of background, learn a little something about first century shepherding. Now, it was a common practice back then to have communal sheep pens, right? So a few families perhaps would come together and they would have a secure place where they could all bring their different flocks for night. Uh, The shepherds would bring their sheep for the night, uh, that sheepfold then being guarded by simply one gatekeeper who would securely lock the pen and then would open that uh, pen to the shepherd in the morning. Um, And he would enter in, call out his sheep, And those that were his uh, would recognize his voice and come out to him and go out to find pasture somewhere. Uh, So that's that's the setting. And it's been speculated that perhaps Jesus was standing right beside one of these sheepfolds uh, when he began this teaching. Kind of have a nice object lesson that he can use. And so Jesus draws a contrast between the shepherd of the sheep and these thieves and robbers. What is the difference? Well, firstly, the shepherd's motives are right. right? He belongs with the sheep, and so he does not need to climb the wall. right? He belongs there. Thieves and robbers, in contrast, have no good motives, uh, as evidenced by the fact that they climb the wall. Right? If you're supposed to be there, you go through the gate. And so the thieves and robbers, they come to steal, to kill, and destroy. They come to ravage the sheep for their own gain, for their own benefit. And Jesus, of course, is using an analogy referring to the people as sheep and the leaders of the people as shepherds. Right? This is not literally about uh, sheep, the animals. And this is not the first time where Scripture uses this analogy. Uh, we see it several places in the Old Testament as well. Uh, very prominently, and you'll, you can turn here with me in your Bibles, to Ezekiel 34. It's Ezekiel 34. Uh, We see God give a warning to the unfaithful shepherds of Israel. And uh, just in case (laughs) you don't believe me that it's talking about people and not sheep, at the end of of chapter 34, God says, you are the human sheep (laughs) of my pasture. So let's read Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. 
So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. So God here is condemning the leaders who had been abusing the sheep. Right? Notice he speaks of these leaders who have treated the people harshly. These leaders who have used their positions to their own advantage rather than tending to those entrusted to their care. The shepherds had a calling. They had a charge, a responsibility. They were to feed the sheep, to strengthen the weak, to heal the sick, bind up the injured, seek out the lost. And God says, because these shepherds have been unfaithful, God is against them. God will rescue his sheep from their mouths. Now, I think this is especially powerful when we remember the context we have in John. Right in this last chapter, Jesus had healed one of God's precious sheep. God had healed a man who had, or Jesus had healed a man who had been born blind. We see then this man was treated very harshly by the religious leaders who interrogated him. Right, remember, they, they challenged him. They confronted him. They didn't believe him. They thought he was lying. They blamed even his past blindness on his own sin, saying, you were born in utter sin. And they ultimately kicked him out of the synagogue. This is not how a faithful or a good shepherd treats the sheep of God. And so the thieves and robbers that Jesus speaks of are these religious leaders who are more interested in fleecing the sheep than in feeding, guiding, nurturing, and guarding them. Right? The thief comes to benefit himself, right? to gain something from the sheep rather than to uh, have the sheep's best interest in mind. Let's continue in Ezekiel 34 if you still have it open. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. 
I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So notice God himself promised that he would come and be the shepherd of his sheep. He would come to search them out, to seek them, to rescue them, to feed them, and to pasture them. I myself will shepherd the sheep. And it's interesting, actually, if you look down in verse 23, if we're still in Ezekiel 34, there's another promise parallel to this, and he says this, And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So notice we have these dual promises. God himself says he will be the shepherd, and then also he says God's chosen servant will become the shepherd. Well, these promises come together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How? Well, Jesus is God incarnate. Remember the prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. Jesus had eternally been with the Father. He is truly God. And according to his human nature, he is a descendant of David, the promised Messiah, the anointed one who was promised an everlasting dominion. And so we have these promises of God as shepherd and also as David as shepherd, and they come together in perfect fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls himself the good shepherd. So with this established in this metaphor that Christ is the shepherd, that he is speaking about himself, shepherding his people, we, his sheep, let us now return to John 10, and to con- uh, in order to consider what Jesus teaches about how he relates to us, his sheep. In verse 3, Jesus says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now, as we'll see throughout this passage, being called by the shepherd becomes an analogy, becomes a metaphor for salvation. If you are called by the shepherd, you are to be saved. And we see it as more than just a general call of all people to come, but rather the good shepherd says he calls out his own sheep. How? By name. He calls them by name. That is, he knows those who are his, and he calls them individually. Now we've just seen a beautiful example of this in the previous narrative. This man for whom God had a special purpose. A man who before his birth was chosen by God to encounter Jesus and to have his eyes opened in more ways than one. That man was one of Christ's sheep. Christ called him to follow. If you are in Christ, then this is an excellent picture of what has happened to you as well. Remember again, John 6, Jesus said that all whom the Father gives me will come to me, right? And he who comes to me, I will never cast out. And he says later that no one can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. So if you are among those who have come to Christ in true faith, then according to Jesus in John 6, this means that you were given from the Father to the Son. You were among those the Father gave to the Son. This means that you have been drawn by the Father to the Son. It means that you are one of Christ's beloved sheep, and he has called you by your name. Not because you were worthy or deserving of it in any way, but rather so that his grace might be magnified in your life and he would be praised for the glory of his grace. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6. Christ calls out his sheep by name. Notice as well in verse 4, Jesus says that his sheep follow him for they know his voice, but the voice of a stranger they will not follow. And so here is one of the clear reasons, the key reasons, why all Christian preaching must be biblical preaching. Christ's sheep need to hear his voice. That minister prevents the sheep from hearing the voice of Christ when he replaces God's thoughts with his own. Something God does not take lightly. And so preachers must always labor to show that the points they are making are truly derived from the text of Scripture itself. Right? For this alone is the word of God. This is where we must go if we want to hear the voice of Christ, our shepherd. And so when a preacher does rightly handle the word of God, the people may truly hear the voice of their shepherd through the preaching of his word, right? even through a fallible human preacher. This makes preaching a weighty, weighty task. And this is also why preachers must be bold in proclaiming the whole counsel of God, right, all of Scripture. It is not our place as preachers to decide that the people do not need to hear a particular truth or command that God has seen fit to deliver in his inspired word. The preacher's job is simply to proclaim the word, unvarnished, untampered with, and trust that Christ's sheep will Listen to his voice. Let's continue with verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So having just been misunderstood by his audience, Jesus shifts the metaphor slightly, although still keeping imagery drawn from shepherding, 
And here he now says, I am the door, or I am the gate. That is, I am the way into the fold of God. Christ is the only means of entrance. And he says, those who enter by this gate will be saved. As Jesus will say later in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ is the gate. He is the way in. Come to the Father through Christ and you will be saved. There is no other way. So what does it mean then? This is so important. If Christ is the gate, he's the only way, the only means, uh, and we're saying this is so vital, uh, what does he mean? He's using a metaphor. What does this mean to enter in through the gate? How, how do we enter this gate of salvation? Well, very simply, it is to repent and believe the gospel. It's to repent and believe the gospel. To believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, to believe that he died on the cross and rose again, and then to turn from sin, confess your sin to God, and throw yourself upon his mercy, believing the promise that all who do will not perish but have everlasting life. Then follow Christ's command. Get baptized and join his sheepfold, his church. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, Christ alone is the door. He alone is the way. In him alone, there is salvation. As we've often said, Jesus did not come to simply be another option on the table. Right? If there were more ways to be saved, God the Son would not have come humbled himself, lived a human life, been tortured and crucified, bearing the wrath of Almighty God. Right? That was not something he did just to give us more variety. Right? Jesus Christ alone is the way. In him alone is salvation. And so no matter how unpopular or even illegal this message might become, as Christ's followers, as his disciples, we continue affirming that Jesus Christ alone is the way to salvation. He alone is the gate. He alone is the way to the Father. And so we come to him as our Savior, as our Messiah, as our great prophet, priest, and king. And we come to him on his terms and not ours. Right, again, back to this analogy. We are his sheep. He is our shepherd. And so we must come to him as those willing to follow, willing to be led, willing to listen to his voice as he said his sheep will. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Christ is the path to life. So in contrast to these thieves and robbers, right, whether they're in the form of false teachers fleecing the sheep, we see plenty of that, right, teachers who would use their position as a means to try to get rich, 
or whether it's false messiahs who would lead the people into war and violent revolution, a very common thing actually in the time of Christ, or if it's political saviors who would promise utopia but deliver only tyranny. The thieves and robbers have come to steal, kill, and destroy, and Christ alone is the path to life. And so the big contrast between Christ, the good shepherd, and all others is that Christ cares for his sheep. Christ loves his sheep, and he says he brings them life, abundant life. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now we'll talk for a moment, or in a moment, about what that word doesn't mean But firstly, let's lean into what it does mean. Christ says, I have come that my sheep may have life and have it abundantly. And so the life of a Christian, according to Jesus, is therefore life to the full. Abundant life. A life marked by all-around excess. That's what that word means. Uh, Going beyond or above what is anticipated or expected. And this is the life that Christ said he has come to bring his sheep. Right, now how should we understand abundance, right? We're seeing it's far more exceedingly above what we could ask or imagine. But what does that look like for us as Christians? Right, we will live lives that are frequently marked by suffering. We see in other places in scripture that we are called to die to ourselves daily, to pick up our cross and join the death march. Right, that's what it means, pick up your cross and follow me. Right? Dying to self daily. And as Jesus has said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will save it. So as we come to look at this concept, this idea of this abundance of life, we must not make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is promising us earthly riches, earthly blessings, what we would typically think of as abundance. But we must understand that Christ himself is the prize. Philippians 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What is true abundance? What is the absolute greatest gift that God could possibly give to us? And here's where we may be tempted to think of wealth, women, fame, good looks, health, or something of that nature, the kinds of things that the world would go after. But those who have truly come to know Christ know that even if they had all of those things, but did not have Christ, it would be hollow, empty, and unfulfilling. Vanity, vanity, chasing after the wind. The treasure we have in Christ is worth selling everything to gain. The greatest gift, the most valuable gift, the most soul-satisfying, joy-enlarging thing that we could ever receive is 
God himself. And this is what Christ came to give us, himself. This is life to the full, to be in communion with God. Peace of conscience, assurance of God's love, joy in the Holy Spirit. We have been given God himself. We have Christ. We have his spirit. We have the Father. We have access to his throne of grace. We can pray to him at any time. We have these great and precious promises that hold true even in the valley of the shadow of death. For our shepherd is always with us. And so gaining Christ and being found in him restores us to our created purpose, brings meaning to every part of our existence, for everything we do can and should be aimed at the glory of our creator God. And so we see literally everything we do is filled with eternal significance. So consider these blessings. His infallible, inspired word his spirit, access to his throne of grace, Christ, our mediator and savior, praying continually on our behalf at the right hand of God, pleading our acceptance. All of the means of grace, our ability to hold sweet communion with God, the promise that God would never leave us or forsake us, the promise that he is working all things together for our good and his glory. This is true abundance in this life. We have Christ himself, and we would not trade this for all earthly riches. Right, so what price would you place on something that you would not trade for the entire world? What price can you put on such abundance? And notice as well that the blessings that we are discussing here are the kind that cannot be taken from you. Right? When we misunderstand abundance, we run into problems. I remember struggling as a, as a young man with Philippians 4.19. Paul says there, uh, this promise, uh, my God will supply every need of yours in Christ Jesus, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now in school, we were taught about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Uh, and so to me, a need was all that, that basic level of Maslow's pyramid, right? Food, shelter, water, clothing, right? Your, your basic needs. And that created a problem when I came to this verse because it seems to me, looking around, as if Christians do not always have their basic needs met, right? They do not always have these things. There are Christians whose homes are destroyed, who are forced to go without food and water, Christians who die of exposure and persecution and other things. Paul himself spoke frequently of going without many of the things, if not all the things, on Maslow's pyramid. And so you see the problem, right? If you understand this promise from Christ that we would have life abundantly, if you take that as a promise of health, wealth, and prosperity, then you are bound to be confronted with the reality that not every Christian and perhaps not you, is experiencing these things in this life. What's the answer? 
Well, the answer to my dilemma is that I was using a different dictionary to define what a need was. As it turns out, the Apostle Paul had never heard of Maslow. We remember as well that Paul wrote Philippians from a prison cell. He had suffered hunger, thirst, nakedness, persecution, beatings, torture, exposure. And he writes in Philippians 4.12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, there's another verse often misunderstood. But what are these all things that Paul says he can do? Well, he can feast and he can starve. He can be comfortable and he can be sleeping in a prison cell. He can be clothed and he can suffer exposure. And as he says, he can face it all with contentment. For he can do it all all things through Christ who strengthens him. And so Paul is speaking from experience when he says that God will supply all your needs. And so that means that when you are suffering in a prison cell, suffering from hunger, thirst, and deprivation, the promise is that God will grant you what he knows you really need in that moment. When God is preparing to take you home and you are in the hospital and your body, your mind, or both have been slowly and painfully deteriorating, we know that at every step, God has been providing what he knew you really needed. His grace was there. His spirit was with you. In every circumstance, God granted you the grace that you needed to be able to honor him. And so we see these blessings of abundance, this promise of abundant life offered by Christ is something that cannot be taken away. These promises are equally true for those who are rejoicing in great earthly blessings and for those who are enduring great suffering. Jesus Christ came that we may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So how did our shepherd come to give us life, to give us this abundant life? How is it that he purchased these covenant blessings for his sheep? Well, the answer perhaps at the center of the work he did is that our good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Again, what truly sets Christ apart from the thieves and robbers, as well as from the hirelings that we'll look at next Lord's Day, what sets Jesus apart from all of them in this passage is that Jesus loves his sheep. Others would break in, would climb the wall in order to take advantage of the sheep, to fleece them, to ravage them, to devour them. But Christ lays down his life for them. Others will sacrifice the sheep to benefit themselves. Christ sacrificed himself to save his sheep. 
Now why? Why did Christ need to die? What is that connection between dying and saving? How does him dying save his sheep? Well, to explain this, we'll shift the metaphor slightly to another one used in Scripture. And that is, our shepherd became our sacrificial lamb. God had taught his people throughout Old Testament history, throughout the sacrificial system, that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. When someone sinned, they were to bring a sin offering. They would bring an unblemished animal. They would lay their hands on its head, and it would be sacrificed before the Lord by the priest. And this would be a powerful image, both of what they deserved for their sin, as well as of the Lord's grace in accepting a substitute. And yet scripture tells us that the blood of animals never really took away sins. Hebrews 10.4. Those sacrifices were left wanting. Right? Something was lacking in them. The very fact that they had to be repeated again and again and again showed that they had never perfected those for whom they were made. Something more was needed. A greater sacrifice. A perfect atonement. A better lamb. We saw in the beginning of this gospel account that this is precisely what Jesus came to be. John 1, 29, remember John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. So to continue mixing these biblical metaphors, our good shepherd laid down his life as the unblemished sacrificial lamb to take away our sin. He died on the cross in our place. Now, Peter says, you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. We all have sinned against God, and Scripture teaches that the wages of sin, what we have rightfully earned for our sin, is death. Death both in this life and that which is to come. But Christ died in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous. In his great love, he laid down his life for his sheep. God mercifully sent and accepted a substitute. And note as well, this was not simply a general love for humanity, but a special love for his sheep. For as we've seen, Christ knew those who were his. Christ knew those whom the Father had given him. He knew his sheep, and he would call them by name. And so it is that we sing, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. What a beautiful reality for all who are in Christ to know that your name was written on his heart and was in his mind as he was sweating drops of blood and agony in Gethsemane. As he went to the cross, Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. Right? Your name was on his mind. 
And for this reason, Christ will then ensure that all of his sheep are called. Not one of those for whom he died will be lost, but Christ will receive the reward for his sufferings. He will not fail to draw nor to keep those whom the Father has given him. He died for his sheep. And just as he was raised, so too shall we be raised. And here, brothers and sisters, is where our hope hinges. Here is why we are meeting this day. And it is why we call it the Lord's Day. Christ was raised on the first day of the week. And so we are celebrating his resurrection, even as we anticipate and look ahead to our own. Now I say this is where our hope hinges, for as Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Catch this. If in Christ, Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right? So even in spite of all these blessings of abundance that we've discussed, everything we get in this life, these amazing covenant blessings, right? All the grace, all the help, all the meaning and purpose. Paul says all of our hope hinges here. For if there were no hope for the next life, Paul says we of all people are most to be pitied. But praise the Lord, this is not the case. The next verse. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And so the abundance of life purchased by Christ and enjoyed already here, we see now is simply the appetizer. For we are yet awaiting the day when we arrive in the presence of God, our bodies raised to immortality as we enjoy God fully and forever. This ought to color every part of our lives. The man who just won the Mega Millions jackpot is not anxious about his leaky faucet. The man on his way to inherit a kingdom does not break down in tears about his flat tire. And the other day I was watching a movie with my kids and Everly was really concerned because the bad guys were coming. Right? She doesn't think movies should have bad guys. Uh, but the bad guys were coming. She didn't want to watch that part at all. And she was so worried about the characters and what would happen to them that the only way I could convince her to keep watching was to promise her, trust me, I know how this ends. All the good guys are going to be okay. Right? And so knowing that the end of the story had a happy ending changed everything. Changed everything. And it should for us as well. Our shepherd came that we might have life and have it abundantly. True abundance, more than what we could ask or imagine, is awaiting us. This story God is writing has a happy ending. It is what Peter Lightheart calls a deep comedy. And that is a story in which not only 
Are the main characters in a better situation at the end than they were in the beginning? But that is, it is a happy ending with no possibility of being tarnished by future tragedy. Christ came that we may have life and have it abundantly. Here and now, but especially in the life to come. And his resurrection is our guarantee. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Brothers and sisters, if you never spend time thinking about the fullness of what Christ has purchased for you, then I would submit that your perspective is lacking. If you are completely consumed with the troubles in this life, such that you never think of the life to come, then you are like someone who is looking through a pair of binoculars backwards. You are like somebody trying to walk using a microscope to see. You need to turn those binoculars around. You need to zoom out from the microscope. Stop focusing everything on this tiny portion of your life. And think instead, uh, look with the eyes of faith at what lies ahead. Eternity with God. If you are in Christ, then consider this. The time will come when all of your struggles in this life are a very distant memory. Just think, when you have lived even three lifetimes in perfect, unbroken, unveiled communion with God, your cup overflowing with perfect joy, how then will your current problems appear to you? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, how then will your current problems look to you? When a million years have passed and you are still running further up and further into the joy of your master, you will agree with the scriptures that say the sufferings of earth were not worth comparing to the glory that was to be revealed. So let us never gloss over these phrases of Christ when we come into our text and we see Christ talk about being saved. When we hear the word salvation, or when Christ promises us true abundance, lean into those things. Meditate on what this means, these great and precious promises. And so let them then have the effect on our lives here and now that they are meant to have. For the saint who knows they have eternal joy awaiting them, who knows that they will see Christ face to face, has a very different perspective toward life than the unbeliever who thinks this life is all they get. When we come to see that this life is a mist and a vapor, we will also then desire to make our time here really count. When we consider that we will stand face to face with our Lord, we will then desire to live in a way of which we will not be ashamed on that day. When we think of the blessings to come, the hope we have strengthens us to endure the hardships of this present time. To close, I'll leave you with the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.